0: and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Falad, and I'll be hosting this podcast. Welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Henry, who is a well-known influencer in the fintech space, the crypto space and digital currency and digital finance space and everything around it. there is so much we can talk about, and we'll cover the key bits and pieces and messages that are coming out of, uh, you know, this 2020 fantastic year that we are in. And uh, so, I just turn it over to Henry and uh, start here. I mean, I just wanted to say you are the PwC global crypto leader, best-selling author, keynote speaker, university professor, and a board member of Hong Kong FinTech Association. So. Where do you find the time and how does it all you know, fit together? A lot of people say that that's impossible to pack into their schedules.
1: <laughs> well, first of all, Rudy, thanks for having me. And thank you for to your listeners to listen to this podcast. So I know you have a choice of podcasts and guests. So thanks for making the time so we can share our passion of the future finance with with uh, yourself and your audience. Now, that's a question I get a lot about the different roles that I wear. I, as, as you mentioned, I wear numerous hats. And the answer is actually very clear how, how I'm able to do all these things is that I'm, I'm a workaholic, uh, you know, personally, and I've said this many times, I do not believe in work-life balance. Uh, I think I tell this to a lot of my students at the university that, uh, you know, if you want to have a nice career, Great. Enjoy your weekends. Enjoy your evenings. But if you want to be the best in the world and you want to be really the industry leader globally in what you do, unfortunately, uh, you have to train like, like uh, you know, on evenings and weekends. And that's how I approach it. So I approach my professional career as an, as an athlete, actually, like a professional athlete. So I'm still at mm-hmm. the evenings. I'm always at the office. Uh, it's Weekends, I'm at the office. So that's how I'm able to find time to write my books, teach. And uh, frankly, do a lot of the uh, kind of be the leading in, in what I do in my industry as well. So that's there's no secret. Unfortunately, it's hard work and uh, hustling. <laughs>
0: Right, and you know, this year has been quite special, right? The many lockdowns around the world, things like this. Some people discovered working from home as well, or remote working. So, uh, some people are obviously were in a tough situation, so they were a bit uh, distracted uh, with family commitments or what have you. Yeah. So, what kept you busy during the pandemic? I mean, I also see some of the artists uh, coming out with some, uh, you know, old songs they discovered, and now they have new albums coming out and the books. So. What is it for you then that kept you busy?
1: Yeah, no, you know, uh, honestly, I've never been as busy as I was during COVID uh, out of my own will, uh, you know? So for example, I think the COVID has, uh, is really going to obviously catalyze a number of things. We can talk about it today, but also I think it showed the personality of people. So I've been always telling if in the the months of February, March, you're at home watching Netflix, watching Tire Tire Kings, uh, you just wasted a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. However, if you took that time, to try to reinvent yourself, take MOOC, to take uh, online courses, take more courses, read about it, be just improve yourself. That was a great opportunity. Uh, the way I kept busy myself during the uh, the the COVID uh, quarantine months, I was literally working on my next book. You know, so I would wake up very early in the morning. Uh, you know, get as if I had a work regiment, and uh, really uh, probably work even more than I was I was normally. Uh, just working on my next book, working on new content, uh, pushing the boundaries of what I do. So, uh, it's, it's I think it's going to be very interesting, and also putting a lot of social media content. As you as you mentioned, uh, uh, one of the things that I do a lot is uh, I have a half a million uh, half a million followers on LinkedIn, and I put a lot of educational content, weekly content. Uh, so I I spent uh, I probably doubled the content that I produce over the last couple of months. Uh, not only because I think there's a lot of need for it, but also I think my audience was probably more receptive. Uh, to educational videos and, and content when they were not able to get it other places. So I think it was an opportunity if you look at it from that perspective.
0: Right, exactly. That's that's what I th- think as well. So, But if we rewind a little bit even to before COVID and uh, focus on the status of uh, fintech uh, debate, which was about disruption versus cooperation. You know, maybe a few years ago, people were thinking oh, about the industry that will change the planet, then... If you were talking about B2C, it turned out that actually it's difficult to build a brand and in some countries to raise money to to build that awareness. So they were talk, you know, the people pivoted to cooperation and partnerships. Where do you think we are now uh, from your perspective?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I wouldn't say we're really at a, at a debate whether it's the disruption of cooperation. I think now for in many industries, many verticals of financial services, fintech is becoming financial services. Uh, I remember very well when I gave uh, my first TEDx talk, uh, it's actually four years ago uh, this this month. Uh, it was actually how uh, fintech will change the future of banking. And I remember at the time, many people laughed at me. I mean, I got so many uh, emails of people telling me I'm just embarrassing myself talking about fintech. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And same thing happened when I got into crypto and digital assets and same thing, right? Um, I think what's a couple of things are now clear. Obviously, fintech is here to stay. Fintech is changing financial services uh, the big, I think, the the the, the distinction we're going to see now is how fast things are moving. So, for example, uh, when I look at a lot of areas in digital assets, for example, in the whole crypto space, things are moving incredibly fast. And now this is what's becoming an issue of some firms are getting on board and some others are taking the, you know, are staying on the sidelines. And I think this is where it's going to be even more clear than we probably talked to three years ago uh, who are, are going to be the winners and the losers in a couple of years? So I think it's going to be very interesting. It's uh, I think the pace of change that we saw with uh, with COVID accelerated everything, and this is actually going to accelerate not only the process but also the outcome. Uh, so I think for for some folks they will be disrupted, and many others uh, the route the route is via cooperation. Uh, but frankly, the the one thing is clear is that the status quo and for the firms who have not changed or frankly their innovation was purely PR was purely for marketing purposes these guys are going to pay the price.
0: Right. So and speaking of the pace of change, right? I mean, you came out with the book, The Future of Finance last summer. Now you said you're working on a new book or you have been working on a new book. So with the benefit of hindsight, anything that has changed in your views on future of finance in the (laughs) last 12 months?
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's interesting. We you know with that book, uh, you know, you know, what from the time you've finished a manuscript of the book to the time it gets published, there's always kind of a six months lag. Which, as you know, in the fintech world, that's pretty. Uh, that's a long time, and especially in the digital assets world, it's even even a, even longer period of time. Uh, you know, the book. The reason I wrote it was very simple. Was uh, as you, as you mentioned, one of the uh, roles that I have is I'm a, uh, I'm a I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Hong Kong, where I teach courses on fintech and crypto. And um, I, I really want my students to be able to have a kind of a, a textbook they can that they can read and they'll be aware of at least they'll be they have the foundations to understand what's happening in Fintech. And equally uh, also for financial services professionals. So I mean it happens to me uh, as, as you know I'm a, I'm a lawyer and a banker by background. I come across a lot of uh, people who are currently working in finance and either they get laid off or often they realize their jobs are disappearing and they suddenly all want to discover Fintech. So I find often uh, the, you know, that's why I often get that occasional email saying, hey, Henry, let's catch up for a coffee uh, for people who haven't spoken in 10 years. Uh, What I do now, I just give them a copy of the book or I tell them to order on Amazon. So uh, the book actually has been been a big success. I mean, we're very, I'm very fortunate. uh, You know, it was became a global top 10 bestseller in financial services. Pretty much the entire summer, it was on the bestseller list as well. And uh, actually, for many people during COVID, they took that time to actually, uh, you know, up, upskill themselves. And the book hopefully was was uh, was able to do that as well. So, if, if there's one thing that I think I would have changed, or it actually that would have adapted, um, is the first one is actually include more um, uh, content on crypto and digital assets. When we wrote the book, there's only about, in the book bu- the book is about 300 pages. There's only about 120, 130 pages on crypto. And uh, when the book came out, I got about uh, easily 100, 150 emails from people, uh, from readers uh, saying, Henry, can you do another book that focuses really more on crypto? You know, that because uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in this last book, I explained Bitcoin, I explained how it works. Uh, so they really wanted to go more in detail on digital assets. So that's how the uh, the idea of the other book came, the next book came that hopefully will come up in a, in a couple of months. Uh, so that that's one thing I would say I would, I would have done differently. And maybe a little, another thing I would have done differently is... Uh, being a bit more, uh, sometimes when you write a book, you know, unlike a podcast or an interview or a YouTube video, uh, a book kind of you, you feel even more that it's staying there forever, you know, it's kind of a legacy in a way. Um, and we took a lot of bold positions in the book, but in many cases, we thought even when we we're writing the book that some of our ideas maybe were, were maybe too bold or maybe too crazy. And in hindsight, actually, a lot of these things are happening now. So uh, I think it's a lesson to all that you know when you believe in something, don't don't believe it's too crazy. Just put it down in paper, and uh, you'll see what happens. <laughs>
0: Great. Well, I mean, it's it's amazing that, uh, you know, your predictions are working out. So if somebody didn't get the book, I think they still should, right? (laughs) They still should. So, uh, well, let's turn over to incumbents. And you mentioned the people that, yes, they've been in banking for a long time and now they want to uh, maybe transition to to fintech. So why maybe in some of the incumbents, the digital transformation hasn't really took hold, right? Uh, Some places you can see that uh, this is a PR exercise in in other places, however, it's it's a genuine effort. And actually, a lot of people also say that the COVID exposed that, right? And whether you were faking it or whether, whether you're there for real. So what's your recommendation for incumbents uh, when dealing with digital transformation? How to embrace it? How to do it right?
1: Absolutely. I think you said it right, Rudy. I think that there was a lot of uh, large financial institutions who were doing purely innovation theater. It was pure window dressing. You know, uh, I always joke that if, you're, if your goal is to have an innovation uh, department or team, a couple of guys wearing T-shirts, you have the cool uh, uh, desk, cool logos. And so it looks good when you're giving a speech as a CEO or when your kids are visiting and you want to show them something cooler. Uh, I think that that was that way that, that actually those firms that were focused on that are going to pay the price. Uh, I think for the, the way that I can see innovation really work in a financial institution is when there is a top down commitment. Where the leadership, the management of the firm is leading by example, you know, and really driving change themselves. And that actually is able to drive the culture. I remember always the story of one uh, one leader in one of the financial institutions in Asia where the, the CEO told their staff that they do not work at a bank anymore. They work at a tech firm. And if they're not happy, the door is there and they can leave. You know, where we're really seeing that that's really leadership mm. and empowering as well, people. I really uh, say that, you know, after the uh, after COVID, the the type of pe- individuals in your organization that will be very important are the intrapreneurs. Not the entrepreneurs, the intrapreneurs. Those who are able to actually drive change within your organization. If as, a, as an organization you're smart, you're able to capture these guys, give them the bandwidth, give them the flexibility, and to break those silos you'll be successful. If you're going to try to keep the same structures, the same parallels, the same silos, uh, these entrepreneurs, I guarantee you are going to leave. So I think that's going to be very interesting to watch uh, over the coming uh, coming months, how this is going to happen. But I think that the, the um, you know, the um, the firms are generally driving innovation who are really on, on the, pushing the digital journey should benefit. For the others, unfortunately, it is what it is. And I think one thing that I always realize is often depends of the individuals themselves. You know, I always give the example or, where I was speaking to one um, one individual in a, in a certain financial institution, and I, and I was telling him about a certain solution that could probably save them up to fifteen to twenty percent of cost. And at the time, he told me, "Henry, yes, this is a great solution, but you know, I have a pretty good package. I have a demanding wife. I have two kids in international schools. I'll be heading back to London in two years. This is not gonna. This is this is not my problem. Let this be the problem of my of my uh, per, the person coming after me." So I think at the end of the day, we should never forget. Everybody is selfish. And that also applies to a lot of people leading organizations today. Uh, And that exists in many organizations, especially those who are legacy, right? Think about the insurance industry, a lot of traditional industries where, uh, you know, I always say that if the only way people get promoted is when somebody retires, there's a problem (laughs) because you're not going to see change in organizations like that. It doesn't really drive Mm. innovation. So I think let's see what happens in the next couple of months, but uh, I think it's going to be very important for entrepreneurs. that will play a bigger role for sure.
0: I mean, I'd like to also double down on this even more because I hear that some incumbents this year, probably the ones who were actually active in the innovation theater play, they are thinking about further job cuts and further cost cutting and delaying innovation. And basically, the threshold is is has has moved, or the you know, or the goalpost, and saying like, look, we work only with the startups where we can see immediate benefits. If there's something that will come to us, you know, next year or the year after, we're not doing it this year. We don't have appetite. We don't have the budget. So on the other hand, can you delay the innovation? If you don't do it now, then even it's not you don't see the benefits next year, but again, the uh, two years later, right? So how can you? Uh, resolve this uh, short-termism versus uh, dedication to continuous improvement
1: yeah absolutely and you're right absolutely unacceptable and i see this more and more ironically that a lot of organizations because of covid they kind of you know put all these like innovation some of them are, are quite important on hold which which baffles me uh, right uh you know the and the other what happens as well because people also are afraid about losing their jobs you know Uh, I think if you're today, you're working finance and you're doing your job in relatively the same way you were doing two, three years ago, I mean, then there's something wrong for sure. You know, if you're not paranoid yourself, uh, there's something wrong, right? You need to be paranoid on how actually things are going to change your business. I mean, I'll give you one very simple example. Myself, every month I I block a one-hour time in my calendar where I literally sit down by myself, I have a notepad, I don't print my phone, I don't bring my phone with me, and I literally think, how am I getting disrupted? I mean, I'm in the field of crypto. I'm in fintech. I'm the cutting edge of the industry. I still think, how am I going to be disrupted whether it's my competitors, whether it's the market, whether it's what I'm doing. And you need to be paranoid. And I think that's what I think you're going to see. These individuals are going to be able to succeed uh, from, from that perspective. Because uh, otherwise, I think if you don't innovate as a leader, as an organization, again, uh, you, you can cut your jobs. You can try to cut uh, some of these non-essential investments. But uh, the reality is that, you know, you're just kicking a can down the lane. Right, uh, this thing's going to happen. Unfortunately,
0: exactly, exactly. I mean, and you know, as we said before, you're the uh, crypto leader at uh, PwC globally. So maybe let's change tack a little bit and talk about the crypto and blockchain in particular. Because I'm not saying that uh, the news flow or how many hits you get on Google search are indicator of anything. But if you do like look at the conferences and the material and and uh, sentiment. Maybe it seems to me that the crypto and blockchain has lost a bit of steam over a couple of years. And last year, the AI was the buzz, buzzword number one. So why do you think that is and why are you still a believer?
1: First of all, Rudy, I probably disagree with you. I would argue that actually now crypto is getting definitely more attention than it was a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Uh, I mean, if you look at, uh, for a couple, I mean, let's very, very basic reasons, right? I mean, not only what we're seeing right now. On uh, the rise, I mean, more interest in Bitcoin, for example, the number of people, wallets, Bitcoin wallets are increasingly going up every month. You have more and more um, interest now on literally what is money. As you know, we're going right now through rounds of record quantitative easing and people are just questioning themselves. Okay, well, like what is money? Like, how does money operate? You know, how does our monetary system operate? Uh, but also more importantly, you're having very, very serious uh, uh, macro changes taking in place. You know, with the Libra announcement in June 2019 and some of the, since then, all the activities from central bank digital currencies, for example, a lot of the institutional players entering the crypto space, a lot of the new innovations happening in the space, I would argue actually crypto now is more buzzing than it has ever been. Yes, you had this whole, uh, the the retail uh, bubble in 2017, the ICO bubble, but these frankly, yes, they created a lot of buzz. Uh, but I, I would say right now we are seeing... Faster change and more concrete innovation than we've ever seen uh, in the crypto space,
0: and I think that's very, very exciting. Okay, great, understood. And uh, well, you know, we can also, tech, you know, connect it to the pandemics, right? Because a lot of people would agree that uh, the pandemic, if it did anything for finance, it has accelerated digitalization yep. trends. Right. So within crypto and blockchain, where do you see the best opportunities given that? Right. The last few months, uh, is it digital currencies, you know, payments Uh, in Switzerland? There is a equivalent of uh, Swiss Amazon. They accept crypto as a payment. So you can buy a computer there. There are a few shops as well, well, things like this. But maybe that's not really the number one use case, is it?
1: Uh, No, I actually I mean, frankly, if uh, cryptocurrencies were just going to do payment uh, I don't think it would have been worth looking at it in the same way we're looking at it right now. Right. I think that Some of the changes, are ca- uh, definitely COVID catalyzed the whole crypto adoption movement. The part of the, let's say, the interest of people because of quantitative eas- easing on Bitcoin, there were some practical reasons. You know, people didn't want to touch banknotes anymore. And that's where digital payments went up. Uh, at the same time, in like any situation of crisis, um, what happens ironically, if people hoard cash. So yes, less and less people were using cash for payments, But actually, more and more people uh, were hoarding cash, keeping cash with them, uh, which is something happens in every financial uh, crisis situation. At the same time, you had governments trying to give money to the public, and they realized how the current infrastructure was not made for it. I mean, uh, just to give an example, in the United States, the US IRS, the tax authorities, had to send over 100 million checks, uh, ironically, of stimulus payment to some of the people who needed it the most. I mean, it's, it's it's embarrassing that we have to do this in 2020. I would argue some of the biggest things we're seeing right now uh, have been catalyzed by that. For example, the big thing that I'm watching right now is what's happening with central bank digital currencies. Uh, you know what? A central bank digital currency is a digital currency issued by a central bank. So whereas Bitcoin is fully decentralized, uh, a, a stable coin like Libra or others are issued by certain uh, corporations or associations, a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, is actually issued by a central bank. And what it's important to understand is today, uh, there's two forms of central bank money. There is cash, like banknotes that you hold in your hand. And the second type of central bank money are the reserves that your bank is holding at the central bank. And actually in our lifetime, in our generation, we will be probably the lucky generation who's going to see the third form of central bank money which in a digital format. I think that's super exciting. I mean, this is in the history of money. This is the one of the type of things that happens once every other generation. So I think that's one example of what we are seeing innovation in, in, the, in, the, in the space. But also there's many other uh, topics going on. For example, when you look at the field of decentralized finance, DeFi. I mean, today, if you think about the banking system, if you think about the banking system in Switzerland, for example, if a fintech wants to connect to a bank, Again, there needs—you know—there needs to be an open banking infrastructure, an open API infrastructure. Again, if if the bank consents to it, which they don't often, because they don't want to—they don't want to make it easy for their customer. Mm. To banks. When you look at DeFi, literally, we call it financial Legos. Uh, what DeFi, decentralized finance, allows you is literally is you can take any existing DeFi application, put them together, and you have a new application. Imagine if today. Uh, Rudy, you could go today, take any fintech you wanted that exists right right now in the world, match them together or take a portion of them and put them together and create your own fintech in five minutes. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's what DeFi enables you. So really, this is enabling actually a whole new world of uh, financial services. We're still at the very early days, but it's enabling a lot of things. And maybe give me, let me give you another example is what's happening with stable coins. Today, if I make a payment from Hong Kong, where I am right now, to Switzerland, where you are, I mean, i um, our payment is not only clunky it takes time it doesn't work 24 7 there's fees fx fees hidden fees and so on and so forth i mean just to give an example my lovely bank here in hong kong uh, does not do fx transactions on a sunday i mean which is a bit frankly a bit ridiculous in 2020. uh mm. right now with stable coins I could right now during this podcast send you you know ten dollars in stable coins. It'll take a literally a matter of seconds, it'll be almost free instantaneously and really it really would completely bypassing the existing banking system. So I think that's another exciting development going on. So again there I would I would argue that you know really what's happening right now in the broader digital asset space, is really super exciting right now, and I'm not even talking about some of the other things going on right now, right? The entry of institutional players, regulatory clarity, uh, what we are seeing from the, the kind of innovation side as well. Uh, but this is the, definitely the most exciting stuff that we have. I would argue, I would argue, right now we are in the most exciting time in modern financial history. We're all living it. Your your listeners are living this, and when it comes to that ecosystem, crypto is definitely at the cutting edge of that, and that's super exciting.
0: Brilliant. I mean, let's focus on maybe one other angle of it, which is the adoption of blockchain and digital assets by incumbents, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, When you think about, for instance, banks, obviously, a universal bank can have many divisions, but think about maybe uh, trading or something like this, right? Uh, A lot of the banks have blockchain uh, kind of leaders as well, and they have many projects, etc. Where do you think there are obstacles still that need to be sorted and how do you think they can be sorted you know it's some people are really talking about permission blockchain obviously right not the original kind of idea of bitcoin they are worried about scalability kyc and then different protocols every bank is leading a different kind of protocol trying to get the network around it and they are competing with each other so where do you think that uh, this is headed and uh, can we automate the middle office, back office, and things like this through blockchain, and and do something better in the bank?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, a couple of things I would mention here is um, I think we need to be very uh, careful when we're talking about incumbents, uh, whether we're talking about you know blockchain as an enterprise or actually digital assets, crypto. I would argue mm. actually that the implementation of blockchain enterprise within the, the financial institutions, there's still some there's some pretty interesting things going on. But it's still, we have a long term, to, long time to go. The reason being, the financial ecosystem today is not perfect. It's clunky, hasn't changed a lot, but it's it works, right? And there's a lot of legacy system, and there's a lot of sunk costs or in it already. This is why I think we'll, I think we'll continue to see the financial institutions experiment, especially in certain use cases like trade finance and and uh, you know traceability and so on and so forth. And to a certain extent, hopefully, and when it comes to middle and back op, uh, middle and back operations as well. Uh, but I, I expect that to still continue relatively cautiously and, and uh, slowly. Where I think we'll see a bit more opportunities is when it comes to digital assets and crypto. I mean, for example, if you're uh, right now an incumbent bank, uh, you're, let's say, a big custodian, uh, you know, you could get into crypto custody, for example. It's a no-brainer. New kind of new new PNL driver, new kind of rev- source of revenue, new client base. Great way to expand the pie. If not, you're going to go be, if not, you'll be chasing the same pie like the other players. Um, same thing if you're a trading firm. I mean, we're all seeing the margins go down the trading uh, on the trading side, uh, despite that the last year actually was a pretty good year because of volatility and everything. But when you look like at crypto, I mean, man, if you're like an industry where you just you can make uh, good arbitrage opportunities, market making, uh, trading, uh, crypto gives a lot of opportunities. So I think what you'll see on the financial institution side is um, some of the firms will get uh, involved in digital assets and crypto uh, faster than they will probably in blockchain. And that's already happening, by the way. You're having a number of financial institutions now looking at offering these solutions from custody um, to servicing to prime brokerage to trading and so on and so forth. Uh, again, uh, the best analogy I always give is very similar to what happens with, happened with derivatives in the 1990s. You know, initially when derivatives came, it was, you know, a very exotic thing. A couple of banks were, were started dealing with it. Uh, it was a, bit, there was a bit of a taboo around it. And of course now, I mean, every every, every organization trades their derivatives. I think the same thing is going to happen with crypto and I think over the next couple of years. So I think that from that perspective, that's how I see incumbents play. But I think the one thing it's also important to understand for your audience, the crypto industry is definitely becoming more institutionalized, for sure. You know, four or five years ago, the crypto industry was probably led by, you know, a couple of guys in a T-shirt, uh, you know, uh, driving some cool innovations, but right now, a lot of the big game changing innovation happening in the crypto space is happening or, is, or it's being driven or facilitated by some of the large financial institution or by some large crypto players that are institutionalized. For example, many of them are, are regulated uh, in, many, in many cases by uh, various regulators around the world. In other cases, they have a lot of the internal controls of SOC 1, SOC 2, a big for audit and so on and so forth that a lot of the traditional financial institutions are used to. So I think all these elements are coming in right now are really encouraging the hockey stick, you know, as a, to use the Canadian analogy. Uh, a lot mm. really this hockey stick phenomenon is happening faster than we expected it. And this is why I remain extremely bullish on the crypto space, uh, not only for the short uh, and medium term, but also for the long term as well
0: fantastic you know plenty of uh, food for thought as uh, as they say so i just wanted to ask you also about where people can find out more about the content that you that you create uh, a lot of people already know about it but if they're new to this i know on youtube you have also fintech and crypto capsules and things like this so what's the best way to find out about what you what you see and uh, what you would like to share
1: Absolutely. I mean, the best way to uh, follow me is on LinkedIn, like uh, like you mentioned. Uh, you know, I have a weekly show called the Crypto Capsule, which is a 60-second uh, summary of the developments you need to know in the crypto space. I know many people are busy, so I summarize everything in 60 seconds. On LinkedIn as well, I have a show called the Fintech Capsule, where I interview numerous uh, leaders in the fintech and crypto community. And then also, I have another show called the Fintech Capsule Explainer Series, uh, where we I explain topics. Like I, I just uh, posted a video today about tokenization. I posted a video last week about central bank digital currencies. So LinkedIn is the main channel, but also on YouTube. My YouTube page on Henry Arslanian uh, on on YouTube page you can see all my videos. So if you wanna you wanna go on through an educational spree, you can find them there. And also on Twitter, where I post more on a daily basis, a lot of new developments and more of a sound bites that come up. So these are probably the best ways uh, of of keeping in touch with me. If people are more interested in learning more, probably the best way is via the book. You can find it online. Uh, it's, it's called The Future of Finance and some of the numerous uh, uh, content that I have on the on the internet. For example, one of them is the MOOC that we did, which is the you know the the most popular fintech course in the world right now, with over eighty thousand registered students. Uh, that covers kind of the basic of uh, fintech, so a lot of inter, inter, exciting, interesting content. And I'm always uh, happy to engage and and um, and share our passion of the future of finance and the future of money with uh, with people around the world. So thank you again for making time uh, today, Rudy. I really appreciate uh, that you give for giving me the opportunity to uh, come on come on the air.
0: Great stuff Henry. Thank you very much and all the best. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, Please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.